theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you this fall morning? I'm doing well and looking forward to talking to Dr. Yamanti Cooper. He is the professor of counseling at El Camino College, an adjunct professor of clinical psychology at Antioch University, a licensed professional clinical counselor, national certified counselor, certified emotionally focused therapist. He is just an amazing person to bring to us today for our listeners. He specializes in working with couples, trauma, sexual dysfunctions, gender and sexual identity, depression and anxiety, bipolar disorder, personality issues, grief, and other mental health problems. This will be really important for our listeners, especially when we're thinking about K-12 education and uh, the teaching and learning in the classroom setting. He's the author of the upcoming book, Racial Trauma and African American Men. He is going to be doing a workshop at Governor State University. His topic is racial trauma. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I think this is such an important topic right now. Uh, in addition to the pandemic, there's so much racial unrest. And so I think this is a perfect topic for this time and place. And he is an expert uh, in this topic. So I'm looking forward to talking more with him about uh, what, what is racial trauma. So I think our listeners will be really intrigued with this topic. I do too, I do too. Hello, good morning. How Welcome, are you? Dr. Cooper. It's so good to see you. I'm uh, Amy Viaclia. Good nice. morning, Dr. Cooper. I'm glad that we are finally connecting. I am Dr. Joy. I've enjoyed our correspondence via email. Nice to meet you as well. Well, thank you for making time with us. So we want to jump right in to some questions for you about your amazing work especially where it relates to racial trauma. Okay. What is it? So I don't think I've actually heard that term before. So what is it and how big of an issue is racial trauma? It's, interest, it's interesting because I've been talking about racial trauma for years and now it's being talked about everywhere. So that's interesting. It, it really didn't have 
it, it wasn't present in the national discourse until recently and as a result of um, what COVID-19 has illuminated as well as these what I call modern day lynchings of black people. And so trauma itself is a wound. It's an unhealed wound. And racial trauma specifically, I would characterize it as a wound that has to do with the construction of race because race is a construct. And um, the, the maintaining of a racial caste system through um, violence and how that affects groups of people. So I have a, a question, a follow-up question. So is that trauma related to something that someone has directly been impacted with or can it be indirectly? Because I know with George Floyd and you see the videotape and you see the helplessness right. of bystanders and you just feel so helpless in some of these situations. And I often wonder, is, is that a traumatic experience for me as the viewer, knowing that me as a people and a person, that helplessness that I feel? Yes, it's both, right? Because there's direct exposure and there's indirect exposure, which is often identified as vicarious trauma. And there's research, and it's fairly recent research that Black people specifically who are in communities or even in the same state as um, these Black folks who have been executed, who have been unarmed and have been executed, have um, poor mental health days. And so they tend to have to take off of work. Um, and so it does affect us. It, it, it affects us whether it's directly or indirectly. And there's research to support that. Well, I want to ask about the, the indirect and direct. Now, for individuals who experience either indirect or direct trauma on a regular basis, what are some physical or visual actions that we can see that uh, as a result of trauma? Right. So the hallmark um, symptomology of trauma is hyperarousal. And so an intrusion, avoidance, and a change in um, cognition and mood. And so what that means with hyperarousal specifically is this, um, this hypervigilance and a sense of um, doom, of impending doom. So that's one of the ha hallmarks of trauma. And with intrusion is these, intrus these intrusive um, thoughts that can come about at any time that can almost be paralyzing at times. Um, and with avoidance is avoiding any reminders of, of those things that are traumatic for a person. And um, a, ch a, a change in cognition and mood has to do with, um, and it's a negative alteration as, as how a person views themselves or um, how they view another person. And often that is shame-based. It's, it's often a lack of compassion for self. It's often um, dis dissociating as well. And so when it comes to race-based trauma, what it looks like often are those, those symptoms, but also it can be 
where um, there's been a series of events that did not receive a repair. And so it's like the last straw that broke over the camel's back as a result of a, a series of events. So it can be a series of racial microaggressions that a person experienced and they didn't process. And after a, after a while, it takes a toll upon a person. And so with those specific um, symptoms, those things can show up um, that, and that mirrors what we call racial trauma. So, and you see patients, how do you assess that what they're going through is actually racial trauma and, and what's the treatment? That's a good question. So typically how you can assess that would be to um, find out if, if they are having these types of experiences, um, what brought about these, these experiences that they are experiencing. And so was it witnessing something on social media or the news? Did they have a personal experience? Was it a combination of things? And so typically asking questions about um, what were the origins or what precipitated um, the symptomology that a person is experiencing and um, making sure that you talk about these issues of race and racism. Can that uh, exhibit itself like maybe in a person being angry? Yes, absolutely. Um, right now, it's, it's, a, it's a healthy response to be angry and enraged. It's not unusual to be angry and enraged right now. That's a healthy response to what's happening in society right now. And so it definitely can look like anger and rage and very much be that. And underneath that, it's likely that there's sadness and there's fear. And so often that, that anger or that rage is really covering up fear and sadness as a result of feeling powerless. And, and, and so I'm, I'm gonna give you a real story and ask you to respond to it. Um, my husband and I recently, we drove to Amy's house to drop something off. And Amy lives in, we both live in Indiana. She lives in a more rural area. I would say 110% white. <laughs> but uh, she lives in a very rural area. And I was dropping something off at her house. She told me she wasn't at home, just going to the garage and put it in my garage and then take this other thing out of my garage. <laughs> and I felt, okay, I, I had no reservations about that. Right. And my husband, the opposite, you know, I first said, are you going to get it? He said, absolutely not. He said, as quickly as you can, he said, I'm going to turn the car around while you run in there. And he said, but don't run, walk slowly and open the door, take it out and come back. He said, there is no way I'm getting out of the car. Right. And I was so surprised. It was a, when you told me that I was like, really? I was so surprised. It, I, it didn't even register. It didn't even occur to me that he would have reservations. I knew you didn't, but that he would have reservations about 
you know, he's what, like six something. Six he's six. He's six three. He's a former NFL football player, and um, he feels and he's always felt that his size and his color can be perceived as a threat. Right. And he lives with that every day, and that was so heartbreaking for me. And, and you know that that's very real, don't you, Dr. Cooper? Absolutely. That's, that's common. That's the norm. Well, and I want to ask this, too. Um, and it's, it's sad that that's the norm. But Dr. Bernice, Bernice King, uh, the doctor, Martin Luther King Jr., made, uh, said, it is traumatizing to be living through a global pandemic and living through the viciousness of racism at the same time now, do you think things are worse now, or did COVID-19 shed additional light to an existing problem? I would say both. I, I would say that um, it, definitely, it definitely illuminated and pulled back the curtain of Black existence in the United States, especially for working class Black people who make up the majority of the Black population. And so it, it really showed the existence of blackness in the United States. Um, how, it, how it has impacted black people is that most black people work in the service industry. And so they were forced to still have to go to work and be exposed as a result of working in the service industry. And, and all of that has come about from um, Jim Crow, as well as um, FDR's um, laws that went into uh, that went into effect when it comes to um, the GI Bill that that created the white middle class, but domestic workers who the majority were black people were left out of um, participating in in these different bills that really created the the white middle class. And so there's a long history and legacy of that. And so with, um, with COVID, we, we got a peek and a full view, if you will, of what it is to be Black and working class in the United States. Absolutely. And I, say, I think my husband would answer that question. You know, he's, he grew up in uh, Argyle Gardens in Chicago in the projects. And he said on Friday, you know, police officers used to beat them up for sport. And so in some sense, things have gotten a lot better because people didn't realize how bad it was or it was just so commonplace. But now that we have technology, it brings a lot of things to light. And because of COVID, we actually have time to pay attention, right? So I think it's bringing a lot of people together uh, across cultures in a very dynamic way and, and racism just has such a strange impact. So how, do, how does racism shape who we are as a person and how does it impact us psychologically? Absolutely. And, and also I, you, you asked me a question about how do you treat it as well. So I'll go back to that. Um, but how it impacts us, it's, it's like the air that we breathe. It's, it's, it's inescapable. And um, with, with the, um, the implicit bias association test, it demonstrates that the majority of Americans have a pro-white, anti-black bias, 
regardless of race, as well as 50% of African Americans. So the, to, as far as my interpretation goes, it's inescapable. Unless you are doing active moment by moment work of really deconstructing and really disrupting and interrupting this socialization that is consistently and constantly taking place through media platforms and the news and so forth. And so um, it, I, for me, the question is, how does it not? Um, that it's almost impossible for it not. And if you are not conscious, then um, it, it will be able to inform everything that you do from what you pay attention to, to what you don't pay attention to, to um, how you move through the world and, and all of your decision-making and interactions with people. Well, and you were going to respond to the treatment. And so my question is, you know, like with my husband, is, is there a healing process that goes on? How do we help our husbands, our brothers, our children heal? And, and do, they, do they need to heal? What needs to happen? Well, part of it is really community, right? And so really explicitly calling this for what it is and, and not shying away from it, not leaning into ideas and tropes that don't really speak to the reality of, of Black existence specifically. And so it's really important to really call it for what it is. And so when when people know what they're dealing with they can mobilize accordingly but if if you're giving people these ideas that don't really resonate for a lived experience then it, it leaves people not really having a sense of empowerment and and resilience so part of it is really to be in community with these experiences and and be connected often these experiences cause shame and isolation because there's this sense of I'm having these experiences because there's something defective with me instead of we live in a society that is ill. And so really um, putting, placing the blame where it belongs and not internalizing these ideas and these beliefs about black inferiority um, and the whole host of um, ideas and tropes that have come about as a result of enslavement and Jim Crow. Um, so that's really important. And really contextualizing microaggressions and racism. Um, and it's important to really get a sense of what we are experiencing emotionally to help us process these experiences. And so what we know based on research is if you can um, name how you are feeling emotionally with specificity, then you can process experiences. There's, there's a less likelihood of depression, anxiety, cutting behaviors, and substance abuse. And so with the rage, with the anger, that feels empowering as opposed to sadness and fear, right? And it makes sense that people would have those experiences, but it's also important to really get clear about what you are feeling internally and what's happening with you and being able to name it and be with it and be in community and not be isolated. Because these experiences tend to create isolation and a person feels like they are responsible for these experiences, which is not accurate. 
that that is powerful and and as a mother who's raised a black boy i would often wonder you know if my teachings to him was accurate because what i would say to him was out of fear you know all he grew up and all of his friends were white if he wanted to go somewhere he had a lecture and i would lecture him about you're not white you know if anything happens this is what you need to do or you can't do the same things that they do you can't get in the same type of teenage trouble as they do and we would have these conversations and i was coming from a place of fear yeah. and he was coming from a place of ignorance right right and what you were doing is what is called racial socialization which is important for parents to do black parents with their black children so taking them through scenarios and letting them know what they will be dealing with and really helping them to prepare for those experiences is really important. Um, and that, that helps build resilience, that helps build the ability to navigate these experiences, as well as cultural pride is really important, have a, having a strong sense of your culture and who you are um, and, being, and, and being proud of that having a sense of um, connection to spirituality. Black people in the United States are, is a very spiritual group. And so having a connection to your spirituality and relationship is really important as well. Thank you, I like that. Uh, and I know your time is limited, so I'm gonna let Amy uh, ask some final questions here. Well, I, I really wanna know, uh, yeah, okay. I, I really wanna know, uh, a little bit about your upcoming book, Racial Trauma and African-American Men. And, and tell us and the listeners of this podcast uh, a little bit about uh, your inspiration in writing this. Absolutely. So for me, uh, it's the inspiration would be a lived experience and having a lot of these experiences and not necessarily having the language around these experiences, but knowing that something was happening and that it, it wasn't right. Um, and then witnessing other Black people and Black men specifically having these experiences and how they have impacted us. And so for me, that was really the impetus and the motivation to do this. Um, and so with the book, what I'm doing is, is I'm offering two theories and one of them is uh, a theory about transgenerational trauma and I call it transgener transgenerational trauma points where I look at specific historical events that have taken place within the black community that have caused transgenerational trauma as a result. Uh, and this lingering trauma. So I look at these specific um, events that have taken place and I talk about them in detail and I make the connection to present experiences. Um, and so that's one theory that I offer. The other theory is a theory, um, I'd look at how black men are not um, viewed as human beings. And, and I support that theory by, um, through implicit bias research. And with, with, through this research, um, Black people are considered um, closely being connected to Simeon as opposed to humanity. And, uh, and so I talk about how Black men have had these experiences because they're ultimately not seen as human. 
And so they can be shot down in broad daylight, unarmed, and it's business as usual because they're not human, they're a thing. And this has been reified by the Supreme Court and so forth. So I talk about that in the book. And I also talk about specific interventions. I talk about um, the science, what the science says in the research when it comes to racism and, and trauma and how that impacts Black people and Black men specifically. Um, so that's kind of like the book in a, in a nutshell. So this is really some in-your-face work. <laughs> what kind of reactions do you get from some of your colleagues? So right now I'm still writing it. I'm halfway done. And, and so when I share some of the things that I have written, um, it usually, the responses overall have been positive. Um, and, and a lot of the responses have been responses of shock and a sense of, I need to process this right now, uh, because a lot of it, the way that I present it is very explicit, and I make a lot of connections in a way that hasn't been done specifically when it comes to racial trauma and Black men. And so a lot of people have consistently uh, asked, um, when is the book going to be out? <laughs> So that's, that's the common response I have received is, is when is the book going to come out? So it's, it's been positive, but it's, it's been a combination of, um, of a validation in a sense of when, when will this book come out? We really need this right now. And, and also a combination of just shock of, of hearing some of the things that I talk about and the way that I present them. Well, we will be certainly interested in uh, seeing and reading these stories as will our listeners. I just wonder too, uh, who have you leaned on uh, to guide your research or who are some theorists that are on your bedside table uh, for nighttime reading? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, there's so many. Um, I, I mean, I, I really look at a lot of different um, theories and incorporate a lot of them. But um, what comes to mind would be uh, social dominance theory. So it's Jim Sedanius, um, who's at Harvard, um, with Felicia Prado, who I believe is at UConn. So social dominance theory is a theory that I incorporate into my work. And within that theory, is um, the male target hypothesis that looks at how racialized outgroup men are targeted for lethal violence in um, society and how women are paternalized and coerced. And so uh, that's a theory that I incorporate in my work. I also, um, I also incorporate Tommy Curry's work um, on, on um, male vulnerability, black male vulnerability specifically. And, and so he's someone that I, I really incorporate a lot of his stuff, as well as David Marriott, who, who looks at um, black male existence and the sense of being dispossessed. So that's someone else. I also incorporate Frank Wilderson's framework of Afro-pessimism so that's someone else that I incorporate in my work. 
Um, and and then there, there's people that I draw inspiration from. So of course, there's Martin Luther King, there's Malcolm X, there's Fannie Lou Hamer, there's Ida B. Wells. Um, there's so many people, but the people that I just mentioned are the people that really come to mind specifically that that have an influence on my work. James Baldwin, I mean, that's someone yeah. else mm -hmm. that I, I draw from as well. Well, you are doing amazing work. I cannot wait until your book comes out. I want you to encourage you to continue to do the great work and informing all people. You know, one of the things that we are working on is trying to increase uh, people of color as teachers because we find that that is very important, not just for colored children, but white children, children of all races need to have teachers of colors so that we have a better sense of community that we get to learn each, know each other on a more personal level. Uh, so we're just proud of, of the work that you're doing and happy that you could join us today. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Yamante <laughs> Cooper, remember that name. <laughs> Yes, and we look forward to uh, future conversations, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Amy Yamanti was outstanding. I learned so much uh, about the topic of racial trauma, but I also learned a lot about how to apply maybe some of these techniques, and now I can put a name to some of the feelings of maybe what I feel personally, or maybe what my husband might feel. So it was so very helpful. And I got some great takeaways from it too. So uh, being honest, there is the reality, you know? So we have to talk about this. It's a real thing. So, you know, so we have to put it out there and we have to have real conversations if we're going to have real solutions. He said, don't shy away from the conversation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we can't, you know, because it's impacting us every day and it impacts us in such negative ways that we can't avoid it. Uh, naming the cause of emotion, step toward healing. I would imagine that most of us who suffer from racial trauma, we have never named it. We don't know what to call it. We don't know why we feel what we feel. But once you can identify what it is, then you can heal from there. Right. Racial socialization, talking children through scenarios to pre prepare them for specific experiences. You know, that one hurts my heart mm. because that is something that I had to do as a mother raising a black son. Uh, and my son in particular, all of his friends were white. And, you know, I had to teach him, you're not white. And this is what might happen to you in this circumstance compared to your white friends. And it is such a difficult conversation, but necessary. And I had that conversation as a place, you know, coming from a place of fear as a mother. And then having cultural pride. And that's something, again, that he said, you know, Blacks really can hang their hats on that. There's a lot of cultural pride. There's a lot of connection between spirituality uh, black people, we, we, we heal ourselves and we connect through religion and spirituality. And that's something that we could really be proud of and help us through this healing process and being able to connect. 
And I just wanted to reiterate again, uh, the workshop at GSU. So Yamanti Cooper is uh, giving a workshop, a three hour workshop on this topic of racial trauma. And I think this comes through the uh, counseling program, the dynamic counseling program at GSU. And so we're looking forward to that workshop. I think that the counselors and psychologists have a lot to learn here, add some things to their tool belt. And I hope we added some things to the tool belt of our listeners. Well, I know that the, uh, his research as well as the people he's reading and leaning on right now um, in the theories that uh, in, are infused in his work are going to be great resources and I can't wait to look more into them and we'll provide those in the show notes as well for our listeners. Yeah, so, I can't wait to have them back again. So thank you. Another another great episode, Amy. Yes, and, I agree. And I'll see you soon. We'll talk soon. Yes, I look forward to it. Okay, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you. Our listeners, did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>